My name is Penny Lacasso and I am the world's first happiness hacker. Imagine a world where human happiness and well-being drove our decision making. A world where technology was used to amplify human potential rather than replace it. The Human First podcast is designed to encourage you to explore your curiosity about the future of humanity. Our conversations are focused on building skill in intentional adaptability, creating the foundation to positively influence the future for yourself, but also for others. Join me here each week as we put humans first. You. I'm great. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, we are here to talk human first. So if we're here to talk human, I figure why not start by telling us who you are as a human being? Who am I as a human being? Okay, <laughs> I like it. Um, all right, so I did this really interesting exercise relatively recently, one of those like values sessions. Yep. And I know this is something that, depending on your audience and the age and things like that, it was actually the first time I've ever done this. Uh, I'd actually, like the first time everyone said, here's a piece of paper, sit down, write out your values. Yep. So I was like, all right, so that's how I'm going to answer your question. That's Great. Cool. No, that's so perfect. Some of the things that, um, who am I as a human, some of the things that make me me, a few core beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I grew up in country New South Wales, Australia. Yeah. So uh, I was one of only, I think, two students from my high school who graduated and went to Sydney for university. Um, so I went to country universities, but it wasn't the norm yep. to leave and go to the, like, the big city, you know? So one of the things that I always had growing up was this idea of like challenge everything and that there was empowerment in challenging the status quo. There was empowerment in not accepting circumstances as given, but always thinking like you have agency to create the change you want to see in the world. So mm. something really cool for me and my work now is sort of working with people to say like, you can literally change anything from your mindset to your physical self, to your relationships, to your finances, um, to your career path. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, so I think, who am I as someone who um, wants to make the world a better place, believes the best way to do that is to take ownership of problems and challenge them. Yeah. And then the way I think I can have the biggest impact is to help other people to learn those lessons and, and make whatever changes they want to see. So talk to us about how that's now manifesting in your career. What are you actually doing at the moment? Because it's very interesting. Yeah. And you've only just sort of launched yourself from a side hustle into a full-time gig, which is your own business. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. So uh, I run a business called Campus Consultancy. So what we do is we focus in on universities primarily, and within universities, the kind of subculture of clubs and societies. So if anyone went to university out there and maybe you were in an engineering club or a cultural club like an Indian students club or a Chinese students club, uh, maybe you're in a special interest club, like a Quidditch club or a Bitcoin club or an yeah. ultimate frisbee club, whatever, <laughs> sports, all sorts of things. So it's this cool little ecosystem. And in Australia, um, we have just over 40 universities and more than 3,500 of these clubs, um, which run as little sort of not-for-profits within the university ecosystem. So why that's interesting to me is every year people leave these clubs, students volunteer to, to run these mm. small organizations, and they have a team. So I experienced this. I ran an engineering club. I had a team of 12 amazing people. Um, we had hundreds and hundreds of members, about 700 members when we started, more than 1,300 when we finished a year later. But what some of the challenges they have, which is very common across all of them, which is why it's a fun little niche, is that there's nearly 100% annual turnover of the leaders. Uh-huh. They very yep. rarely get any training. And they come from all sorts of different backgrounds, being you know 20, 21 sometimes. 
So if you've studied an arts degree or an engineering degree or a music degree or a politics degree, you probably haven't had any business training. You probably have never been through the professional development that in the working world, the corporate world, when you rise up to management, you might have worked in teams for a decade. And yeah. You might have been to had your two percent professional development every year, and you've been to thirty conferences, and you've done all the personality tests, you've done all that. Whereas in university, they're leading these communities that are massive in scale, have a lot of resources, but even though they come with the best intentions, they're not always empowered and, and given the skills they need to be the best. And being their best in the role is so often about creating the best possible experience for hundreds of other students. Mm, and so. What's interesting about that is, one, there's a whole opportunity in terms of skills development that would then help the corporate world. Yes, massively. And given, I think I read the other day, there's a report that just come out of the Foundation for Young Australians that um, 50% of kids under the age, or people, not kids, youths under the age of 25 um, or young adults can't actually get full-time work because they're not actually skilled in the things that corporations want. Exactly. And by you doing what you're doing is you're actually giving skills for the future that Mm. actually make these people more employable. Exactly. But equally, they can can totally level up what um, their community group is doing in helping others realise possible. Definitely. And I think for me, the, the, the interest in this work and the focus on people is that it's just a benefit across the board. So from a university who ultimately fund programs like mine, where I sent and the program, I come in and I teach them the skills they need to run an organization. Yeah. The university benefits directly because we know that universities are business, students are customers. Um, every business struggles with attraction and retention. Mm. So by having empowered and thriving campus communities, we know that that's attractive to future students. So that, for instance, I work with a group, um, Melbourne University Math Society, and they've been asked to go to the open days for Melbourne University and promote the maths faculty to, to yeah. school students. So it helps the business by attracting great high school students, future customers. It also helps them retain students because there's a lot of research around students who are more engaged, like in the workplace. If you're yeah. engaged in the workplace, you're likely to stay there for longer, contribute yep. longer, help them further. So by engaging students in campus life, they stay at university, they complete to a higher rate. You're in an industry where, um, like, lifetime value, LTV of customers for universities well over $100,000. Mm. So there's this enormous scale, this enormous room for impact at a university level. It helps the students while they're on campus because they're helping each other. It directly buys into that need to, like, contribute and to grow and to connect um, with other students. So it's immediately beneficial to the students there. And then when you look into the future, I think it gets really exciting. Mm. So that same Foundation for Young Australians, who are absolutely amazing, um, and lots of their, I've read their reports back to front. I wish I could memorize all the great stuff. I'd seem like a genius, but I, I pull out little bits and pieces where I can. One of the things they said, and I think it was a new work order. Yeah. And it was this year. Um, they said that students, well, people entering the workforce, regardless of if they're students or not, who have strong enterprise skills, so can, crit- can critically think, can work in a team, have leadership characteristics, have something like a 17-month head start on the competition. Yeah. So when we've got... 40 universities pumping out graduates and they're all going for, lots of them are going for very similar jobs. To have a 17-month head start is enormous. Mm. And that's exactly what our program is based around, these skills that employers are saying, we want you to be able to do A, B, and C, so why not run a program that teaches A, B, and C? And gives them practical application through running these communities. And the, the yeah, other exactly. thing I absolutely love is you are working in the space of advocating human connection yeah, and cultivating greater human connection, which is something that we, you know, are absolutely lacking in society, mm. and it's impacting you know the mental well-being, especially of gen- that generation. Yeah. Um, so I love that. So talk to me then a little bit around what's got you excited about the future. Oh, so much stuff. 
So I think like one of the one of my really core cool beliefs, and I know you've just recently come back from Singularity yeah. News, is that right? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes of all time is the Peter Diamandis quote where he says like, um, the world's biggest problems are the world's biggest opportunities. So true. And yeah. so for me, when I see a problem, whether it's on campus, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a startup, where there's a problem that's just been around for a long time and people have started to accept it, that kind of core belief from where I grew up of challenging the status quo and saying mm-hmm. like, this doesn't have to be this way. It just might be that um, either no one's tried to change it, no one's seen it the way that we currently see it, or they've tried and the timing wasn't right or certain things didn't go their way. So for me, the ability to empower people from all different backgrounds with all different passions who can mix frameworks for a moment, but who can find their own kind of ikigai, the thing that they love to do, that they're good at, that they can get paid for. The fact that people are creating these futures for themselves, whether it's within a company, an entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship or the traditional career routes. The fact that people can take agency over their problems and then create a solution that could influence lots and lots of people really excites me. And I think increasingly we're starting to see, I mean, we're based in Melbourne right now. One of the really cool things in Melbourne is this thriving like social enterprise, very progressive city until I think two days ago, the most livable city in the world, seven years in a row. Uh, And now we're number two, I think. Um, (laughs) But this really progressive, really livable city who has, Australia has so much going for it, yet there's this whole community of really, and Foundation for Young Australians, perfect example, really incredible and brilliant young people who are going, okay, everything's great, but what about this group who doesn't have a voice and what would they look like if not we solve their problems for them? Yeah. And I think that's respectful. But to say we're going to empower them to be able to create the changes from the inside. And whether that's from the inside they create their own startup or from the inside they bring in a service or from the inside they fundraise money or whatever they do, that sort of empowerment excites I, me about the I love that. I love that because I looked at things like Tech Fugees, which was created by Mike Butcher, who's cool. the editor of TechCrunch. And um, he saw a problem, you know, with refugees and them being integrated to society in Europe. And so he brought together, you know, an unbelievable tech community mm. to actually work with the refugees to give them access to the skills and the support that they needed to actually help them integrate and solve the problems that refugees face rather than solve them for them, yeah. give them what they needed to make it happen. Yeah. And I just think the more we can do that rather than saying, this is what you should do. Yeah. Rather, we, well, This the, is what you need. Yeah. You tell us what you need. We'll give you the, the tools and the resources and the skills to make it happen. Yeah. And then you can do it. I mean, empowerment is amazing. Yeah. So talk to me then a little bit around what's got you disturbed about the future. Oh, what has me disturbed about the future? Um, hmm. I've just, okay, so I'll try to frame this up and then hopefully something good comes out of the process. So (laughs) the last couple of books I've read, one was Matt Ridley's Rational Optimist Mm -hmm. and the other one recently passed Hans Rosling's um, Factfulness, Mm. which... um, I know at least Hans definitely has a, an incredible TED talk. I'm not sure about that really, but the book sort of talk about all the really logical reasons for um, why we should have a lot of hope in the future. Rebecca Solnit's A Hope in the Dark as well um, um, is another one. And so from reading those books, I've just seen so much overwhelming positivity towards the future. Um, what has me disturbed? Was that the question? Yeah. Disturbed about the future. My question would probably be, um, well, my thought at the moment is, one of the telltale signs, I think, and I've done a lot of research around sort of tribes and movements and, and how how movements catch on in society, the yeah. kind of like tipping points and things like that. And 
one of the things that I think is really interesting, a really interesting take I heard recently was that for, for movements to catch on, people have to be unsatisfied. And the most powerful movements um, say that the past was amazing and the future will be amazing. But then inherently that means that it's like a dip and there's something wrong with the future. Or like, there's something wrong with the present. Now, yeah. So if you look at, say, like, um, a reli- like religion, like Christianity, there was the Garden of Eden where everything's perfect and there's heaven where everything is perfect. And therefore, you're a sinner right now. But you could, it was like that and you could get there again. Look at, like, Trump's campaign. Make America great again. Really yeah. subtle, but that's what he's playing on. Is It's like, America was great. It's not right now, but follow me and I'll make it great again. So I think, like, what scares me a little bit is that with great movement and with great empowerment and with it even, like, the, um, like the I have a dream kind of thing, that like, it's very future-focused, which is powerful, but what's the implication of that for the present? And I think you touched on it before around mental health rates. Yeah. And it being a really big issue is that, I mean, we can be in a, um, we can be in a country in Australia where you can get a minimum wage job and be very close to the 1% of the world, where there's so much to be grateful for here in some of the best times ever globally, whereas I think there's this discontent and this unhappiness and it's manifesting through um, mental health and it's manifesting through what comes out on social media, et cetera, that I wonder where, where, where a, a continued and sort of increased focus on the future what, imp- what impact does that have on people living in the present? And that sort of growth of like, you know, when people get into like, like in Iceland doing it myself, like I have like a mental health practice and I have it like a, a med- meditative practice around yeah. um, how to be really grateful and how to be really present with people and how to, um, how to enjoy like today's a, a, a Friday. Yeah. Like life is just a whole bunch of Fridays. And it's like, what am I doing today to make today good? Because at the end of it, it's just a whole bunch of those days stacked up. Yeah, correct. It's so, like the past is gone and the future isn't here yet. So yeah. the present is so important. And it's so yeah. interesting because this morning I um, ran a program with a group of people called uh, that I started running called Busy Equals Bullshit. Oh, and good. what was so amazing to me and, and so it's so sad is that how um, few people think that they're in control of their time anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and, and how that impacts their mental health mm. and how it impacts or takes them away from the things that they would love or long to do. Yeah. And this morning, some of the conversations, it's like, what would you be doing if you weren't busy? Mm. What did they say? Oh, my God. One of a one, uh, multiple people said to me, I'd spend more time talking to the people I work with. Mm. Um, there was a HR director and she said, I'd spend more time walking the floor and having conversations and I'm like, you're in HR. Isn't that what HR should be about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, basically, they were saying that because they were busy, they didn't spend time humanly connecting. And I'm like, yeah. that is the foundation of for so many things in the future in terms of skills that we need, mm-hmm. in terms of being able to create environments that are innovative, problem solving. You know, all of those things come off the back of understanding one another mm-hmm. and, and talking collectively, collectively around solving problems. Yeah. And when you talk about sort of, when this ties into sort of future of work and this booming, especially in Australia, one of the fastest growing ecosystems in the world around startups and entrepreneurship, mm. like one of the, the first thing any one of those courses teach you, teaches you is human-centered design and design thinking and mm. that you should factor in how like your solution isn't necessarily the answer. Go and talk to the person you're trying to serve yeah. and ask them on an emotional level about their problems and their ambitions. And it's about them. And I think with, when, when we say we're busy and I'm guilty of it sometimes, so I'm too busy for that. It's me, me, me. 
I need to make this phone call. Why? Because it's on at least some level, I believe it's self-serving. Or I have to do this appointment. Or I, I suffer because I think about myself and I think I've just got so much on my calendar. A little bit of woe is me. I'm just too busy for that right now. Whereas I think if you would, like whenever I tried to take a step back from that, and just last week I took like nine days off. Mm. And I went and I hung out in the house. We stayed with 16 different people for nine days up in the snowy mountains. And it, it was ironically... I think this could even be a... I'm going to misattribute this quote, so I don't know who it's from, but this idea of, like, in wilderness, there's no Wi-Fi, but you'll get a better connection. Oh, I love that. So corny. How good is that? I've been, like, waiting for the right time to drop that somewhere in my life. It's the first go. time it's ever come I out. I love that. But it's, like, for, for me, like, I couldn't turn my phone on in the snow because it would die from the cold. These, like, positive constraints. There was no Wi-Fi in the house, so we didn't check our notifications. Yeah. But because of that, we'd have these multiple hour-long dinners. We'd drive for 45 minutes up to the snow and everyone would sort of chat to one another and it'd just be, we'd be focused on that day. What are the conditions like? What's the weather like? Where are we going to have lunch? It was just, it was so present. It wasn't, you know, who's going to get promoted at the end of the year. It wasn't, you know, I've had this problem with my boss. Like, I don't think I heard a single person out of 16 people complain about a colleague or a coworker or a project or anything. It was just like, they were in the present, they were enjoying it, um, yeah, I think that's really liberating and something that if you, when I keep trying to use first person, if I say I'm busy, I know I'm not prioritizing the present enough. I, like paradoxically, I'm saying like I need to do these things because something in the future or something in the past, but yeah. not I just need to enjoy my Friday. So I think that's a beautiful segue into the next question, and that is when I say to you, humanizing the future of work. Yeah. What does that mean, or I think in terms of, and this is something where I, I want to speak from my experiences of work yeah. and then like what would that look like if it was more more humanised. I think it's a movement towards, in terms of the whole future of work, I think it's a move towards taking into account people not as cogs in a wheel, not as like I know a lot of education and university, industrial revolution and all that sort of stuff has teed up this thinking of like you sit in a box and then you go to university and you go into a job and you're kind of a cog in a wheel, but it doesn't account for if someone's on a production line, it doesn't account for their emotions or their relationships or their dreams or their desires or um, as proved with, you know, the rise of kind of like psychology and mental health again, sort of the impact that someone's childhood might still be having on them as, as an adult. And so I think like to have a more human centric future of work it's to look at people in their entirety yeah great <laughs> and to to take into account like how do you enjoy the present day and if like i know that lots of businesses are driven like a project based um and are always looking for that and some businesses are always looking for that next piece of work and sometimes things just have to happen today like i get that but it's at the end of the day every piece of work in every single business that's not automated is still done like by a human being who has feelings and who has emotions and i think an awareness of what's going on at an individual level. Your, your comment about the HR, like, director, mm. or whatever before was really interesting that, like, isn't that your, like, is that your job to walk the floor and to get to know people and their problems? Um, well, I mean, I look, if I look at sort of role models in that space, I look at Lena Nair, who is the head of HR, I believe, globally for, um, oh, gosh, the biggest companies in the world, and oh, I've no. just gone totally blank. Yeah. 
Unilever. 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 There you go. And I've listened to her on a number of podcasts, and she basically is not on her computer during the day at all. Wow. So she, her whole day is dedicated to human connection because she said, my job is about humans. Mm. And this is like the most senior HR person in Unilever. Like, they're massive. Yeah. She's not, she said, yes, I do email at night, and I own that. She said, but my day is spent wow. humanly connecting with people because that's my job. And I'm like, wow, if you can do that, anyone can do that. And But, but totally. it comes down to what you prioritize, doesn't it? Yeah. I think these things to, these things are interesting too. Like I know if someone was listening to this and they worked in whatever job and they were like, oh, well, she, like, she can do that because of whatever reasons there are. Whereas, like, I always like to think of these things as, like, little experiments and little challenges. Oh, I agree. Just to make the day better. Like, what would it look like if whenever you're listening to this, you could say, all right, maybe not today, maybe not this week, but sometime this month, I'm going to take a day and I'm, even if you just, you need to do emails for half an hour at lunch, whatever, as little as possible. Can I have a day where I am entirely human focused at work? And I don't care if you're like an engineer, if you're flipping burgers at Hungry Jack's, if you deliver the post, if you're the most senior like tech consultant, if you work in a university, just like at the end of the day, if you sell a product or a service, you're reliant on a person purchasing either for themselves or on behalf of other people that product or service. So all work is inherently about human connection on some level. And I wonder what it would look like and what people would get out of. And I'm going to take my own um, practice, what I preach here, take this challenge myself. What would it look like to have that 100% human-focused day? So I'm going to do that. Now that you've said that, I'm going to do that because we've got human hour coming up on August 31st. Awesome. um, Which will probably have been and gone by the time this gets released, um, which is all about basically people switching off in order to switch back on humanly. Yeah. So I'm actually going to embed what you just said as part of that day. Cool. Rather than just do an hour, I'm going to do a day. The other thing, though, before I went to this workshop this morning, and I think given the context of this conversation, I was thinking a lot about this context of busy equals bullshit and what would it take to create even more space, even though I've been very proactive in Mm. creating space for the things that give me meaning um, and actually um, being more human in my work. And so I'm actually going to, like you say, I love experiment. Yeah. So it's easy to say, oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. Yeah. I'm actually going to experiment. Once human hours over, I'm going to actually take a week and not answer email for a week. Yeah. Because I think email is someone else's to-do list. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people feel busy because they spend most of their day in email. Mm-hmm. And I do do a lot of sort of block work where I switch off. But I'm going to – and I have an assistant, so I'm going to own this. So I'm not going to – my assistant can check my email. <laughs> okay. And I'm That's happy fair. to have a conversation with her once a week to address any challenges that she's got around closing those out because obviously at the end of the day it's a business. But I'm actually not going to touch email for a week and watch what happens. I just think it will be interesting. And I guarantee you the world's not going to turn off. Yeah. And this is one of those things that, so when I just had these like nine days off, I, because there's a lot of key man risk in what I do, like there's a lot of me sort of driving business development and facilitation and relationship and networking, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I was very aware that I didn't want to do an experiment that could potentially just throw all the hard work out the window, but I limited myself to it was about five minutes, 10 minutes, some days not at all, Um, but 10 minutes or less every single day for these nine days across all work. So it was like LinkedIn messages, Facebook messages, group comments, emails, the whole deal. And like just to see see the impact of that was really interesting. So I can give a, a real life example. So I had two new really interesting and exciting pieces of businesses come on board. Um, one was I got my confirmation from uh, 
um, the University of South Pacific. So in 10 days, I'm off to Fiji to run a program, which is going to be amazing. Um, and But that was confirmed. I didn't have to re- reply to anything. And then I got an acceptance of a proposal to RMIT, one of the universities in Melbourne, yep. um, to run this big program for their student leadership um, cohort, Future Edge. So like two new pieces of work came in because of the work I'd done beforehand without like kind of touching anything, which was cool. And then on the other side, two little opportunities came up. Um, and I don't want to say little. I think that's me trying to um, justify it. Two opportunities came up that could have been enormous. That Who knows what opportunities they might have opened up. But two opportunities came up and I saw them pop up and I knew I didn't have the time to reply because because I limited my time. Yeah. Uh, and I just sort of had to sit there and I said, like, am I going to break this kind of oath I've made to myself or am I just going to let these two things go by and just see if I'm okay with it? And I decided to let them go. And then now I sit back and, and I sit here and look back on it and I'm like, like yeah, they would have been cool, but like abundance mindset. I, again, Peter Demander stuff. It's like there's so much out there that I could let those two, two things go by for the benefit of my relationships, my mental health, my physical health, and like, the business isn't going under. Everything's going great. It's a choice of time. And exactly. So it's about knowing that you're in control and consciously yeah. um, looking at where you invest that time in terms of what makes most sense for you in that moment. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to say, like, for, I mean, I know there's this huge fail fast thing, which is a whole other conversation, but like, it's almost taboo to talk about intentionally letting a piece of business go when someone runs their own business. Saying like, I'm going to choose to let that thing go, even though for every reason it's a benefit to the business, purely because I've decided that for my own well-being, I need a couple of days or I need a week or I take two days off a month or I do a, a day without tech, whatever. But I've made that commitment to myself for my longevity and ultimately for the benefit of everyone I serve. Because if, if you're steering it, you need to be in the best possible position. But like, what would it take for someone, and if someone's listening, like, what would it take for you to let a piece of business go such that you are your best self, your happier self, your most oh, fulfilled that. self? It's true. And so much of the conversation this morning when we were speaking about busy was how, when was the last time you were bored and just created mm. the space for nothing in your diet? That's interesting. What do people say? Yeah, most people couldn't remember. Couldn't remember the last time they just had space that was unfilled. Mm. Yeah, and and it's so interesting. I mean, Seth Godin talks a lot about boredom. There's a lot of people that talk about boredom is where the creativity and the innovation is often found. It's often why you have your best ideas in the shower because there's nothing else going on. And so I was kind of, I've become a big advocate of how do we allow more boredom into our everyday? How Mm. do you stop the noise and just create the space for nothing? And what what is it? Why is it we have to always talk about the fact that we're busy? Why can't we, why couldn't I say, you know what, when you ask me how I'm, I'm bored. I'm actually going to allow today to be boring. Yeah. I'm going to see how that plays out. Not about it being boring, but I'm just going to leave space. Yeah. I'm just going to leave space and see how it gets filled. Mm. I think it's interesting. So to close this out, talk to me um, around some of the hacks that you would recommend to those who are trying to throw thrive in this kind of overwhelming, you know, tech future that we find ourselves moving into. What are some of the hacks that you've employed that have helped you kind of navigate and be your best self? Yeah. So I think one or two. Okay, cool. So maybe one, just because I I wrote about it this morning and it's something that's on the top of my mind. Um, There's a really amazing talk by Simon Sinek. I think he did it in 2013 at 99U. Yep. I don't know if if you've watched it. It's on YouTube. It's all free. His talks on YouTube are incredible. And it talks about these sort of four drivers of human behavior through the lens of chemicals that produce happiness. Mm. Really, really interesting. So he goes through like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. And 
the example I use, so I was trying to explain it to someone one day, and my hack ties into how can you intentionally choose activities or things in your life or in your day, in your calendar, that produce these different chemicals. Um, so to, to frame this, and I'll use the example of the beach and how I try to explain it normally, but it's really important to take the morality out of it. So like if people feel happy through different things, people have their own passions, but like on a chemical level, you can create happiness in fundamentally different ways. So people know if they go to the gym, they feel really happy. You know, that like runner's high kind of feeling mm-hmm. that level talks about. Um, whereas if someone achieves a goal, they also feel happy. Whereas we don't have a metric to, or, or a mechanism to compare, well, is on a, on a zero to 10 on happiness or fulfillment, is runner's high or is achieving a goal better? Like we don't have a way to do that. And they're completely different chemicals. So these four in the example I use is, I live in St. Kilda in Melbourne. And in summer, at least, I spend a lot of time walking along the beach. It's really quite like calming and beautiful, and I just enjoy it. And if you're walking along the beach, or if you're familiar, with, say, if you don't live in a coastal area, imagine like a park or something. So say you imagine someone walking along, and they're just like listening to music, and then smiling, and they look like they're having a good time. They're completely by themselves, just a casual pace, that, but they're outdoors, and they're in the sunshine. Like... The reason they feel happy through whatever state change they get from music or just being outdoors is this sort of serotonin release. It's like, I'm proud of myself. I'm having fun. That's okay. I've given myself permission. So your brain will like create this chemical that will make you feel really happy, Mm. which is great. Like I've experienced that. Like just walking around, you're like, I'm happy right now. You know, you didn't do anything necessarily um, to, you didn't really do anything to create that rather than creating time for yourself to be potentially happy, maybe from boredom. On the other side, so you might see someone walking along by themselves, serotonin. You Then you might see someone running. So you see someone running along the beach, and they're really sprinting, and they've got their headphones in, and they're just really pumping it. They've got a sweat on, still at the beach, same environment, different activity. And we know from our exercise, you get this release of endorphins. So endorphins will make you feel great as well. That run is high, but it's a completely different chemical from a guy or gal or um, person in general who's walking along and just having a great time. Different chemical, same feeling of happiness. The third one is this idea of like oxytocin, which is huge for us, which is like that connection and that love and the relationship and all that sort of stuff, that sense of belonging. So it's like you might be at a beach and you might see two people sitting there watching the sunset, holding hands or having a cuddle or with a new baby and just like smiling and glaring into its eyes and they feel amazing. Like they're having this experience and it's not because they've got a state change from music. It doesn't have to be sunny for that to happen. It's not because they're running and getting a sweat, but that relationship building produces happiness. And then the fourth one, which I think is a really is the most addictive one, and what we see in work all the time, is this dopamine release, which is like you achieve a goal, mm. and then because you achieve a goal, you feel really like you feel that sense of like pride and it feeds into your significance drive and your achievement drive, and you want to achieve more goals and you want to go higher. You make a sale, you want to make the next sale. You achieve anything in your physical or um, physical life or your professional life or your academic life. And you just want that next thing, that next thing. And it's addictive. So why, like, when we you get a promotion, you go to work the next day, like, you still want more. And, like, it's not that you're selfish. It's that you're chemically producing a hormone. I guess it's a hormone. I'm not sure. Yeah. Not a chemist. Um, but you're producing something within your body that makes you feel good but also makes you want more. It's a very similar area when they put that under the scans. Simon Sennett talks about this. Under the brain scans that lights up when, like, um, people are, like, ingest, digest, whatever, like have cocaine in their system. It's similar, like very like you get this huge rush of happiness, but it's addictive and you want more. Yeah. So it's what I've noticed for myself is a lot of my life was driven by activities, which I've since like Mm. come to realize 
I was driven by dopamine. I was addicting myself to that by always wanting to achieve, achieve, achieve. As an engineer, I had to measure everything. I had to improve efficiency and effectiveness. And then that, I had a, someone who taught a concept similar to this once ask me like, okay, like if that's your strength, if that's your default, if that's the chemical that you're really good at producing and you keep producing for whatever reason, where has that had a detrimental impact on your life? Like where has your financial health, mental health, physical health, relationship health suffered because you're all about achievement, because you're all about filling your days, because you're all about being busy, because you don't want to be bored because that means you're not achieving. If you're not achieving, you're not getting the chemical that you crave. So for me, even if there's probably some part of that science that someone will watch this and go, that's not how it works. I'm fine with that. But I know that different activities produce these different versions of happiness that neither is right or wrong. But there's a balance. But there's a balance, and that's what I've been trying to focus on. So Ah. I think when you go in the startup mode and it's 24-7 or you're in your own business and it's like achieve, 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 that's well and good, but things suffer on the side of that. So making time and the hack, making time for for myself to take nine days off. And so this is the reason I went to nature. Um, I was snowboarding. I didn't have notifications. I wasn't achieving anything. I was with a whole bunch of different friends. Like it was all the other chemicals. You were just being. I was just being there. It wasn't about, I've got nine days to be the best snowboarder I can possibly be. You know? Mm. So it's, how do you, how do you manifest that in, in your life, in your week? Is it, I mean, last night I did something for the first time ever in Melbourne. I just decided to run home with my partner. So, like, we strapped on our runners at work and then we got changed in our workout clothes and we just ran back to St. Kilda. You know, it's an endorphin release. It's like an oxytocin. We're together. We're building our relationship. So, it was like just something a little bit different that I could – I didn't have to interrupt my day. We, like, tacked it on the end. It didn't affect her day or her work output. We just added this little thing in that we knew – it might sound really calculated, but we just knew would make us happy. And it did. And we felt awesome. And now I get to talk about it with you – which is like a second hit of happiness. Yeah. So like it gives and gives and gives. Um, but yeah, just looking at your day or your week, doing a little audit and being like, all right, how much of this is all about achievement? And if I look at my calendar, it's like 99% making time for the rest. Thank you for joining us today on the Human First Podcast. If you loved your experience, please take a moment to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher and provide us with a rating. If you'd like to access the show notes or learn more about what we're up to in the context of humanizing the future, jump on over to humanfirstpodcast.com. See you next week.